This is a special episode of Maker Tale. I'm your host, Robert Masick. Jacob is on the East Coast. I am on the West Coast. I'm visiting some family. While I was out here, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I said on a lark, oh, let's see if we can find a museum. And I found two museums. So today's episode is going to be visiting with the Precision Craftsmanship Museum. And I found out that it has a lot of ties to uh, Joe, the former owner of Sherline. He's since passed. But Sherline equipment a lot of us have used, and even though they don't want to be, you know, a promotional tool from Sherline, uh, profit from Sherline goes back into this museum. Uh, so I think it's a, a great thing to do, and they're a great piece of equipment anyways. Uh, I also went to, and I was unable to find somebody to talk to, the Antique Gas and Steam Museum uh, Incorporated. So the website is agesm.com, and when you go there, there's a bunch of equipment in a field. You can just walk around. It's a recommended $5 donation to go in there. The same with the uh, the Precision Museum. And they're both within about 15 minutes of each other, so I totally recommend making a day of it and going hitting both. Easily, you could fill an entire day with each museum separately. So if you're in the area, definitely check both of these out. <coughs> Excuse me. And we have a uh, guided tour. Uh, at the Antique Gas and Steam Museum, you also have, um, there's a train that runs, there's a blacksmith area, there's a bunch of equipment, old old tractors up on the hill, and there's old engines and other things housed in some of the different areas at the Antique Gas and Steam Museum. It is outside, so, you know, just be prepared, you're going to be walking around in the sun for a bit. Bring a camera, bring some kids, and really take a look at some of these uh, amazing pieces of equipment that have been sitting out there for a while. Uh, I was able to get in touch with Craig, the director over at the uh, Precision Craftsmanship Museum, and not only did I get to go in, out with uh, my dad and my sister's boyfriend, we got to walk all around, take a look at some of the great uh, displays they have there, but we were able to sit down and talk about the origins of the museum and the purpose that the museum was made for. Um, love for you to just take a listen, and when you're done, check out the uh, agsem.com for the American Gas and Steam Museum, the Precision Craftsmanship Museum, uh, and all the website information will be in the SoundCloud stream, so if you want to look at that. Uh, and then also take a look at Sherline.com for Sherline equipment, which makes some great little machines and a good start to equipment. Uh, Alright, on with the show. Craig Leibuse. And we're at the, Craft the Miniature Engineering Craftsmanship Museum in Carlsbad, California. Awesome. And uh, this is kind of an offshoot of Sherline, which I learned for the first time today. Uh, you know, how did this come about? We try and keep the two separate, but they are um, related no, no matter what, because the money that keeps this thing going is from the sales of Sherline tools. It's the Joe Martin Foundation for Exceptional Craftsmanship is the full name. That was started by Joe Martin uh, about 15 years ago. And he always felt that the people that use our tools, the Sherline tools, are some of the best craftsmen around. They're working in miniature. Um, they're working with, in the machine shop world, our minimal tools, but yet they're still creating beautiful miniature work and they're working small because either they don't have the space to work big or what they want to build is just small. 
But he always felt that movie stars and sports stars made way too much money and got way too much recognition in relation to what they provided to American society as far as their skills. And, um, you know, he, uh, he worked in construction early on, and he started as an asbestos worker back on the East Coast. And he said that he always felt that a, a, a good welder who could lay on his back 50 feet in the air and weld a perfect bead on the bottom of a pipe that you could barely get to was worth a whole lot more than a guy that could put a ball through a hoop. But yet these guys worked in sub-zero temperatures and got no recognition for what they did and were kind of looked down on by a lot of society as just manual laborers. Um, he had simple tastes, although he, he had a nice boat and he had a few race cars, but he didn't spend much money. He didn't travel. He put all his money back into the Sherline business and grew it very well over the 42 years we've been in business. And um, he's decided to put some of that money back into a foundation, which he started. We started giving awards to the Craftsman of the Year um, 19 years ago. We started with that program. Um, we did have um, um, a lot that he wanted to get accomplished. Um, the museum started out as an online museum, whereas we thought we could just show pictures of items and tell how the guy made them and describe them, show pictures of them, and build up a beautiful online museum that anybody could go to 24 hours a day and uh, be free, and we could disseminate that information and document these people while they were still alive, tell their story and how they learned to do what they do, why they built what they built, and so on. As it grew, we started getting actual donations, and those in turn led to other donations, and pretty soon we had a small museum in the Sherline plant. And I think early on there was a lot of suspicion that this was some kind of a Sherline promotion, that, that this was just a, a sham deal to try and sell Sherline tools and get people to donate their stuff so we could benefit from it. And I don't think a lot of people early on understood the purity of what he was trying to do. And it was a struggle to keep it separate because it was in the Sherline plant and it was sponsored by Sherline. Um, he finally decided when we outgrew that space that the only way we were going to get real credibility in the museum world was to have our own complete separate building with the name on the building and, and separate the two from Sherline. The funding still comes from the sale of Sherline tools. Joe passed away about a year and a half ago, and in his trust, he left continued funding from the profits of Sherline to continue to fund the foundation. That makes my job as director easier because I'm not spending all my time fundraising. I do have enough basic income to cover our three employees and our rent, which is very little because it's just a few fees to the fire district. Joe bought the building out of his own pocket. Uh, he paid for all the display cases. And in fact, he really didn't even take tax deductions for him. He invested two and a half million dollars in this building and really didn't deduct it because he was afraid the IRS would look at it as some kind of a tax dodge, which he wanted to absolutely avoid. So he just uh, sucked it up and, and bought the stuff that he needed and, and put the money into it. This was basically, this is his kids. He didn't have children of his own, and he, this is what he wanted to leave behind was this foundation and uh, this museum. Yeah, I came in here this morning relatively blind with, uh, I was just searching, I'm in visiting the area, and uh, 
I, I am uh, impressed and surprised at the level this museum is at. I mean, you, I go to a lot of museums that are kind of smaller and have a smaller collection, but this is, it's got to be, what, 20,000 square feet? Um, it's it's 16,000 square feet total, including the upstairs, about 13,000 footprint. Yeah. Including the machine shop and our, and our wood shop. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's beautifully lit and just set up and the displays and everything, and everything has information attached to it, which is awesome. Well, I figured that was, that's my job, is to make it a self-tour if possible. Um, you can learn an awful lot by reading the tags. Uh, you can't see it all in one day if you're going to do that. Um, and if you like engines, you're going to be reading for a while because there's a big variety of different kinds of engines. And uh, other displays too. We're we're branching out into dollhouse miniatures, uh, miniature guns. Um, I bring in things too that I just think guys who are interested in this stuff, which is like me. I figure if I'm interested in it, our audience is interested in it. And if I played with Erector sets when I was a kid, most of the older people who come in probably played with Erector sets, and they enjoy seeing a collection of Erector sets in the back. Uh, those kind of things switch around, but. Um, Everything from tether cars to, you know, a lot of model airplanes because that was Joe's, Joe Martin's background. He was an early radio control flyer and knew all those people in that industry. So we have some pretty rare stuff in the model radio, air, air, uh, radio, radio control airplane field. So, um, but uh, dollhouse miniatures were a little hard for him to get involved in that until he started coming over here in retirement. He used to sit out front and greet the visitors that came in and talk to them when they were uh, getting ready to leave. And he found that guys, a lot of guys came in with their wives, and the wives would just sit down in front and take out their knitting or take out a book and start reading. And he'd talk to them, and he figured, you know, it's really nothing of interest for them here. And it turned out one of his good friends, his boating buddies down at the harbor, as a former Marine, he had no idea that the guy built dollhouses as a, <laughs> as a hobby. And... He found that out, and the guy was a really good craftsman, so we put some dollhouses in, and it definitely broadened the appeal uh, to younger people and to women. And if you go in there right now, my impression was, oh, this will, this is great. This will keep somewhere something for the women to do. That's how chauvinistic I was looking at it. You go in there, I guarantee at any one time, there's just as many men in there looking at the little tiny furniture and the you know the little metal pieces made by our current craftsman of the year, Bill Robertson. Um, the skill involved in something like that is, is still at a high level. And oh, yeah. Craftsmanship different from is, engines, but yeah. yeah, craftsmanship is craftsmanship. If you like good stuff, everything in here will have some kind of appeal to you. And that's everything in here. And I just see, <clears throat> like some of the, the motors, there's just beautiful machining. Mm -hmm. And then you read a little byline that it was done on a manual machine and you get a little more impressed. Um, I would say with the exception of that sculpture by Chris Bathgate and maybe a few other things, almost nothing in here is made CNC. Yeah. Um, we've featured a, a big Deltic diesel engine made by uh, Clint Tomlinson of England that was all made CNC. We kind of did that on purpose because it was so beautiful and there was probably no physical way somebody could have made it without CNC. It was so complicated. But it started quite a controversy among craftsmen on our website. We got some pretty um, drastic letters from people insisting that CNC machining could not exhibit craftsmanship because the craftsman didn't turn the hand wheels himself. And 
Joe was an early proponent of the use of CNC. Actually, he went through, started making Sherline machines on manual equipment. Then he went to NC equipment with the old paper punch tapes and finally got CNC equipment. And every time we upgraded our machine tools in the factory, the equipment got better. The final output got better. We scrapped fewer and fewer parts. The finishes were better. Everything about the machine got better. We're making the best machines we've ever made right now because we have the best equipment we've ever uh, had. And he always felt that a guy who could program a CNC machine was not a one step down from a guy who turned the hand wheels. He was one step up because you still had to know everything you need to know to turn the hand wheels plus how to tell the machine to turn the hand wheels. Um, and there was no dishonor in, particularly if you're making multiple parts, in programming a part as opposed to sitting there and turning the hand wheels 10,000 times yourself. That wasn't a glorious operation particularly. If it could produce the same result and do it quicker, there was nothing wrong with using CNC. And there's still a lot of purists out there uh, that will fight you on that. And I'll agree if, if you've got a guy that's um, you know, just cranking out parts and he set up a CNC program to do it, that's a good business decision, but it's not very satisfying. It's an operator. Yeah, and even if he's a, I mean, we have trouble hiring. It's easy to hire operators. It's hard to fire, hire programmers. Somebody who can decide how to fixture something, design the fixtures for it, write the program for it, set the machine up, test the part, and make a good part. That's such a high level of skill in so many areas that you just can't find that. You don't go out and find that easily. Oh, it's, it's easy yeah. to find somebody if you, if you put the program in the machine, load the fixture on it for them, and tell them to load parts and take parts off. There's a lot of guys that can do that. But um, I'd say at Shoreline, we only have maybe three people that can set up a whole part. And the rest are just operators. And you used to work at Shoreline? I was the art director at, and marketing director at Shoreline um, Actually, since Joe started, he never had anybody in that position, and we shared an industrial park on Grand Avenue in the 1970s when he was just getting started. He started importing the tools from, Sher from Sherline of Australia. Um, the inventor was a guy named Harold Clisby, and he found a way to make a small lathe based on the same dimensions as the old Unimat lathe, which was very popular at the time except that by using extrusions, he was able to eliminate all the, all the flimsiness of the, of the Unimat and also substituted a little more powerful motor and turned it into a, a usable machine that could turn out accurate parts as opposed to the Unimat, which was a very clever design with a lot of accessories, and people loved it, but it really was limited in what you could do with it. Were those injection molded, I think? No, they, the, the current Unimats are all, are all plastic, and they're made in Germany. Uh, these were from Austria originally, and they were all uh, die-cast and machined. Um, but they just had a two-rod bed. There were two round rods and a, and a saddle that rode down these rods, and they flexed a lot when you put a load on them. They, just, they weren't rigid. Uh, by going to a single steel extrusion, or originally a brass extrusion on the old Sherlines, um, it stiffened up the machine so much that you could apply a more powerful motor to it. And over the years, we went from a fifth horse uh, to a fourth horse to a half horse AC-DC mo AC motor. 
and eventually to a 90-volt DC motor, which had way more torque. But the, the rigidity of the machine could handle it, so it turned it into a much more useful machine. And when Joe started, all there was was a 3.5-by-8-inch um, lathe. There wasn't a long bed lathe, there was no mill, there was a little milling column for the lathe. Now there's three mills in the line, the two different length lathes, uh, 260 some accessories, all of those were developed by Joe. I think when I started, uh, the first price list that I put together had all the machines and all the accessories on one side of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Now it takes six price lists to list all the variations of things that are available. Six price lists, two sides, two columns on each side with much smaller type. I mean, we've developed the product line that much since then. And that was all Joe. That all came out of Joe's brain. I think there was a thread cutting attachment and a boring head and maybe two other accessories when Joe bought the line. And um, he brought that line over from Australia and started manufacturing it here in San Marcos, California. And the first thing he did was hire me to redo the instruction manual from Australia because it was done with photos. And his first big client was Sears Roebuck. And Sears has a very restrictive um, manual as to how to produce instructions for, for Sears tools. If, you, if you've ever bought anything from Sears, you've seen their instructions and they all it always looks like Sears instructions so we had to follow those I had to redo everything as line drawings and put them in the format of a Sears instructions and that's how I got started with Joe early on and from then on I did all his advertising all his marketing his, his catalogs up until 1996 um, I, I had been also marketing director for Mori Boogie bodyboards and that company got taken over by um, Transco's Wemo division, and so I was not. I had a couple afternoons a week free, and Joe said, "Well, come to work for me. Close down your business and come to work for me," which I did in 1996. It's kind of a big decision to give up my own business I'd had for 23 years, but it meant that I went from having 20 bosses to one boss at least, and uh, a steady paycheck and some paid vacation, which I'd never had. So it was a good move for me too, and I've been the marketing director up until this year. I finally. Hired my replacement over there. Uh, Jeff is going to be doing my job now, and I'm just working at the museum. That's awesome. Um, have you noticed uh, any? So there's been a lot of, I guess, the maker movement since about 2006 or 2007. There have been a lot of newer, smaller CNC equipment and 3D printers. Have you noticed that's affected kind of the craftsmanship uh, view or the craftsman approach to craftsmanship and learning, uh, like precision machining? It's one of the few areas that's brought tools back into the minds and hearts of young people. Let's put it that way. Schools have abandoned them. Uh, they pretty much closed down all the shop classes, at least on the West Coast here. Um, they blame it on insurance, but I think mainly they just didn't have teachers that were interested in that. They were te interested in teaching academics only and looked down on manual skills as not being something that they should waste their time with. Um, that's changing now. We're getting some trade schools in the area. There's Trade Tech High in Vista, um, High Tech High in Carlsbad, and we're actually turning out people who can walk out of high school and into a good-paying job as a plumber, or a carpenter, um, uh, you know, a machinist. And we need that here because it's hard hard to find those people in in our society now. Oh yeah, my previous employer we had 250 people that were some level of welder, mechanic sheet metal engineer, machinist, 
and trying to find employees was so hard. Uh, we ended up doing some work with uh, the National Machine Tool Association (NMTA). I don't know if you ever. Yeah, we've actually, them. they've hosted some meetings here. At oh, our, awesome! At our uh, meeting room. Uh, but as far as the maker movement, I, I find that very encouraging. When robotics and robotic competition first started, I thought that might be a good source for interest in making custom parts and small um, small metal parts for robotics. The way most of those programs seem to be run, though, they, they take pride on using found parts rather than making exactly the part they need. They don't teach people how to make a particular part. They teach them how to scrounge a VCR unit for a pulley or a, a piece and how to put things together. And it's very a lot of cleverness involved, but the emphasis isn't on making exactly the right part, which is what we would prefer to see. I think the maker movement is going to be the, the portion of that market that does fill that, that part of it, where they see a finished product and they look at the parts that need to be done to do that and they don't go out and start taking apart a vacuum cleaner to try and find it. They just make a drawing of it and they make it, whether it's on a 3D printer um, and even if that's just a prototype or they cast it or whatever. The mindset seems to be to create a finished product and to learn the processes that are involved in doing that. And that to me is, is very encouraging. I'm, I'm glad to see that. And since we've adapted CNC to our machines, that is, most people, when we go to shows now, that's all they're interested in. Um, it, the people that are going to make things like that. 20 years ago, when we start, first started putting CNC on machines, machinists were getting out of the trade and retiring that had never run CNC machines. They weren't interested in it. Uh, they didn't want to learn it. Uh, computers, they didn't even want to own a computer. They wanted to do everything manually. Now, if you have anybody that's a former machinist, they just think in terms of CNC. That's just the way parts are made, and they start from that rather than working up to it. And they don't have a fear of computers that the generation 20 years ago did when, oh man, I gotta use a computer, I don't wanna learn how to do that. Now it's just, okay, computers, they don't scare me at all. It's just, you know, G-code, I can learn that's an easy language, you know, and I can get it, I can get, a robot to make a part for me, basically. You got a CNC machine, it's just a robot that makes parts. And I can learn how to tell it to do that, and I can walk away and it'll do it while I'm eating lunch or whatever. That's an advantage now, whereas when we first started, uh, it scared people off. Except for the few hardcore readers of Servo Magazine and <laughs> people like that that would go, wow, you mean I can make a circuit board myself? You know, Most people didn't think about uh, taking it down to that level of control. Um, they're more assemblers than makers. They just wanted to bolt a couple parts together and have something that worked, even though it wasn't ideal. As long as it worked, it was okay. We found that it's the examples of success. So like, uh, you know, a, a young person maybe wanted to learn to juggle, and they want to learn to juggle seven balls, but they don't have any local examples. Once they can see on YouTube or just see someone else has succeeded at that, and it makes it a lot easier. Instructables and uh, Make Magazine and a lot of these other uh, publications which are showing people here step-by-step -step instructions. And then that sharing community we found has really helped people get into, oh, you can, not only do we have CNC equipment at our place, we, we built our own CNC. So we've refurbished a 1982 
uh, Hitachi Seiki CNC, which has bubble memory and all kinds of weird stuff in it. Mm. And we've got a bunch of little <clears throat> Sureline CNCs there. And the first Sureline that we had, it was a regular Sureline. Then we CNC'd it. And from there, we were able to build a, a five-axis CNC machine on it. So built it with a little bit bigger build volume and everything, boxways, you know, and, and, and using that equipment just to build more equipment and more equipment and 3D printers. It's been a really, you know, it's kind of like that first, uh, the first taste, get you hooked. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're always open to taking it to the next level. I, we realized all along that tools like this are only of interest to a small segment to any particular group. Joe used to say, I wish I sold scuba gear. I could probably advertise in two magazines in the world and reach everybody that <laughs> I wanted to reach. Tools are, small machine tools are so general that they have a place in almost every hobby and avocation, but only for the very top 5% of the guys who are willing to learn how to use them and to make exactly what they want. Whether it's model railroads or radio control cars or whatever, most guys are happy with the parts that come out of the bag on the wall at the hobby shop, and they'll put them together. The guys that stand on top of the podium at the contest, though, they made something out of titanium that everybody else used the stock aluminum part off the wall. And those are the guys that we advertise to, um, the really hardcore. Um, if you want it exactly what you want, you got to make it. Now, you may go on to bigger tools later and make bigger things, but because of the price and the capabilities, small, precise tools get a lot of people into thinking about, I could make that. Um, one of my big disappointments, unfortunately, is, is the increase in popularity in, in cheap imported tools. Um, I'm afraid they scare more people out of the hobby than they, than they bring in because people are just starting out with machine tools. They need accurate tools. They're, um, they can't depend on the tool to be accurate for them. A good machinist can take a hundred-year-old lathe that's five thousandths out and turn a part within a tenth. He'll overcome the facts, the, the, the faults of the tool. When you're just starting out and you try and turn apart and the chuck isn't even round and there's still chips from the machining process inside the gearbox and things are grinding and you got to turn and a half a backlash and you try and turn an accurate part and you can't get an accurate part, you tend to think, oh, I'm just no good. I'm not a very good machinist and I give up the hobby. And rather than going, I need a better tool, they'll just take, I invested $275 in this lathe. I guess it it was a bad idea, and I'm just giving up. You know, I'll, I'll try something oil painting or something that I can do. Um, whereas if they just started out with a good tool to begin with and use it properly, maintain it properly, they could have made good parts right from the beginning. And as they get better, they can go buy a used machine that has got a little slop in it, and they can still overcome that because they have good technique. Um, but starting out with a bad tool uh, just because it's cheap, it's a very bad idea. It's just uh, scares people away. Yeah, and I've learned that the the best example that I learned is with a table saw. Woodworking always scared me. Uh, my old man had a Sears Craftsman like 1940s table saw, and I think my entire youth we never changed the blade on that thing. <laughs> just smoked through. Just the smoked. Part. Yeah, we just burned <laughs> through the wood. And <coughs> finally, up at the shop, I got uh, I got two new saw stops. And I hadn't used any table saws in a while. And then I went to do a project 
and the saw stops have a micrometer adjust table fence and everything like that. And I just blasted through the project in an hour that normally would have taken me eight to ten hours on this other table saw. And I'm like, oh, that's that's a that's what a good table saw is. And it's yeah. just going and, and comparing those two tools, and that's what we try and you know provide. And like that's the original Sherlines is you you could see we did small robotics, so it was one, three, and twelve pound robots, and the guys who would get the Sherline they were the winners or they had the most interesting robots and they didn't always win by competition level like destroying the competition but they had the best robots that were made where people were building walking systems and machining their own motors you know when you show up and you've got your off-the-shelf motor and the guy over there has built his own motor machined it machined his stator and then wound it mm -hmm. well, he's got a specific advantage already there because he's made a motor exactly to what he wants right. Well, that is hard to advertise to that crowd because we had to spread ads all over from radio control car magazines to, you know, um, every kind of modeling industry. We have people that make uh, fishing reels. We have people that make pens. There, in every kind of hobby you can think of, there's that 5% at the very top that will read your ad and say, hey, that's what I want. The rest of them will go, oh, I don't need to go to that level, that level of trouble. So as marketing director, it's been very difficult to focus in on that, that audience. And as we see the traditional machinists and woodworkers that grew up with shops in their house and their dad taught them how to use tools and they could fix their cars when they were young, those people are aging out of the market. And... Um, I, and before the maker movement came came around, I was really worried where we were going to find some new people who would want to start with entry level machines. Where I mean, we also sell a lot to industry. A lot of times they don't tell us what they do with them, but it's perfect for some little job they're doing. Um, marketing them as second op machines is is one way we're going with a little roll around bench and a CNC machine and a computer and everything all built into it, where you can just set it up next to a big CNC machine. And, and have your operator run some small pins or something like that and while you're doing while the jewelry. cycle is running. I went to one jeweler shop who had about twenty uh, Sherline set up on CNC mm -hmm. running. I don't think they ever want to talk about it because they're a handmade jeweler. But yeah. In their back room, they got twenty little Sherlines humming away making all the parts. One of the things that's frustrating is that over the years, I've always had hundreds of pictures of things that people have built on Sherline tools. <laughs> But they're all little steam engines, and guys are so proud of them, they send me 20 pictures of everything you make. And then you sell a machine to Boeing, and you go, wow, what are you going to do with this? And they go, I can't tell you. And I found other guys that, like a guy that made carburetor jets, and he sold them for $400 a set for a V8. They're custom jets for a 350 V8. And... He said the first day that he bought the lathe, he paid for it. He made a set and a half of jets, and he paid for the lathe. And I said, wow, can I run an ad on that? And he goes, no way. I don't want my competition. <laughs> no, I, I can make these on a $400 lathe, and it's, it's been like that, too. I had a guy who was actually on the cover of uh, Science um, Magazine, and he had developed some, in college, built some really amazing nanotechnology. And it was a real breakthrough, and he used, he had a Sherline mill in his dorm room, and he showed me everything, and I said, wow, let me take some notes, and he goes, no, you can't write any of this down, I'm getting a patent on this, you know, I don't want anybody to know how I did it. So, very, you look at our catalog, you see very few industrial products, that doesn't mean that they're not made on Sherline tools, it's just that some guys found 
a real advantage that for two or three thousand dollars he can set up a CNC machine that will do this part. That's all he needs. He doesn't need to tie up a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar Mazak to make this part anymore. He can use that to make parts that require a big machine, and he can make small parts on a small machine if the numbers are right. I mean, it's not going to take off metal at the same rate that a big five horsepower machine is going to do, but it just keeps keeps running, plugging away. If you if you need 25 of them apart or 100 of them apart once a year or something like that, you don't need to spend huge dollars to, to do it. Yeah, and you also don't have a half million dollar capital investment right. where maybe if it takes a little longer, you you might be able to save 497000 Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate your time today, Greg. Thank you for sitting down with me on short notice, and uh, I'd love to hear uh, how people can get find the, the, this museum, the Craftsman uh, Museum, uh, digitally and physically, and, and how can people come and see this? Well, if you can't get to Carlsbad, California physically, you can always go to craftsmanshipmuseum.com. That's the gateway to our museum, and on, on there is a map. There's our address, which is 3190 Lionshead Avenue in Carlsbad. There's a map on how to get here at the um, contact link at the top. And uh, most people, I would say, even if they do come here physically, they go first and look at the website just to get an idea of what we've got. And uh, there's a displays page up, uh, link up at the top that shows you what we actually have in the physical museum. Obviously, I have more online than I do physically on display here. But... Um, we're open Tuesday through Saturday, 9 to 4, uh, closed major holidays only. Um, and we welcome everybody to come out and see us. Awesome, yeah. And Craig won't say it because they're trying to separate uh, Sherline from uh, the museum. But if you get a Sherline, it will help the museum. And I can say from use, I've used the product for about 15 years. They're a great product. Um, and is that Sherline.com? Yes. Sherline.com, and they are only a mile up the road from us. They're open Monday through Friday, and they're happy to give factory tours for anybody who wants to see how the machine is made. Um, you can just show up. You don't need an appointment or anything, and somebody will show you the showroom. There's demo machines to play with, and um, Carl or Pam or Fred or somebody will take you on a tour of the, of the plant if you want to see how they're made. Well, that's awesome. I might give that a shot. Uh, thank you very much for your time. All right. You're welcome. Hopefully that wasn't too bad. No. I don't know what they were, what emergency they were bugging out with, but I guess it couldn't have been too bad. Looked like they... they